We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. What's up, everyone? I'm Laura Sextro, CEO of The Unity Project and your podcast host. On today's episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Paul Alexander, epidemiologist, former World Health Organization consultant, senior advisor to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in 2020 for COVID-19 response, and he is also the chief scientific officer here at the Unity Project. Dr. Alexander talks about the World Health Organization's latest attempt at a globalist agenda, and we get granular around the science of why these vaccines are so dangerous and unnecessary for children. I hope you find this episode informative. I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Paul Alexander. He is also the uh, Chief Scientific Officer for the Unity Project and an incredible warrior in this fight. Dr. Paul Alexander is an esteemed epidemiologist and a widely recognized global expert on COVID-19. He is Chief Scientific Officer of the Unity Project. He has previously served as a Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, special, excuse me, specializing in COVID pandemic policy during the Trump administration. Dr. Alexander has also worked with the World Health Organization, Pan American Health Organization, as a COVID pandemic evidence, evidence synthesis advisor and is a former assistant professor at McMaster University in evidence-based medicine and research methods. Methodology. Wow, that's a mouthful, but you are an incredible person. I've had the privilege and the honor to be able to work with you in this fight for a few months now, and I'm blown away with, with the work and, that you're doing and the information that you're sharing. Tell us, Dr. Alexander, how did you start in this fight? How did you end up where you are today? Okay, well, first of all, I want to say thanks tremendously to the Unity Project and to, uh, Jeff Hansen, yourself, Laura. Um, I met you guys uh, when you joined this, uh, this battle um, some months ago, maybe six or eight months ago. And um, I don't know the exact time frame, but, but I, was, I was very, very eager and keen because I understood what Jeff was trying to do, particularly the battle in pertains to the mandates and the vaccines in children. So, so um, I'm very privileged. I, wa I wanna get that out on the table this weekend. On Monday, I. I went to uh, Albany, New York. I drove there. I was asked by Bobby Kennedy and they to uh, give a short speech with Dr. Harvey Rich mm -hmm. on the vaccines and just COVID in general. And I spoke for about 10 minutes. I may try to mention the unity because I thought it was very important. And uh, we had thank a very, you. Thank you. And we had a very animated uh, uh, crowd, uh, New Yorkers and stuff who hungry for information and they've mm -hmm. been devastated by the response. So. Um, yes, my background training is in evidence-based medicine, et cetera, but germane to this discussion um, around mid, so I worked many different places, particularly government of Canada as an epidemiologist. Although I lived in the United States for the last three years, um, 
I'm originally, well, from the islands, the Caribbean, but mm -hmm. I live in Canada for many years and I work for the Canadian government as a Canadian epidemiologist. I was actually posted to South Asia in 2001, 2002, to India, Pakistan, Nepal. I was living in Nepal, Kathmandu, um, in the embassy there on a tuberculosis and HIV drug resistant policy a project, which, mm -hmm. which sought to reduce TB and HIV in the region. For all of those countries like Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Maldives, Bhutan, um, Nepal, India, Pakistan. So I had a lot of experience. I worked at um, the WHO. I got a secondment type position in 2008, 2009. Okay. At the regional office of World Health Organization in um, uh, Denmark, in the city of Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And so I lived there for that period of time reporting to Geneva, WHO in Geneva, and the regional office in Europe, looking at the projects that I looked at in behavioral risk factors and stuff. Um, the countries that I worked in were Russia, Ukraine, Poland, and Turkey. So I had to move around to these nations and deal with the World Health Organization, country-level offices, and all of the officials there. So I have a lot of experience with that. Um, I worked for the Infectious Diseases Society of America that's headquartered in Virginia for about three years, from 2017 to 2019, the beginning of 2020, as their um, guideline development trainer, in the sense that doctors and surgeons and scientists who make clinical practice guidelines for infectious diseases, um, they need sort of support and help in how these guidelines are made before they're actually developed and are published for use in the medical profession. So my so job, you, was, sorry. So you know a thing or two about infectious diseases and, and yes, preventing yeah, disease transmission. Oh yeah, because I worked in that field, but I was hired more as a epidemiologist methodologist to help them mm -hmm build these guidelines and in terms of all of the evidence-based medicine issues, how do you meta-analyze data and then take extensive data, randomized controlled trials, observational studies, and then pool it together to come up with summary pooled estimates to make more informed, trustworthy clinical decisions. Right. Um, that was an important position for me because I met a lot of senior people in the ID community within America and globally. Yeah. Uh, around mid of 2019, the World Health Organization and Pan American Health in Washington, do you remember the World Health Organization is the umbrella agency, but there are about five or six divisions. So there's the European division, the African division, the Americas division, which is headed by PAHO in DC, Pan American mm -hmm. Health. Right. So, between Geneva and PAHO, David Shelton asked me if I can help them develop a training program for low and middle income countries globally uh, in terms of conducting bread and butter epidemiology and research. Um, anything to do with evidence and how do you take evidence and put it into policy, et cetera. So mm -hmm. I, worked, I, I was their consultant and I developed that for them. And by around, after about six months in December, January of 2020, so very germane to this, COVID began to rear its head, starting in December 2019. 
It began to raise head in Wuhan, Hubei province in China. And we were getting reports of, of this situation and some people dying. We were also getting the reports of the situation in Lombardia, Italy, where people couldn't get care in the hostels and were dying. And it was kind of a very frightening picture. I myself was concerned by what we saw. You know, the, the, the media showed us these pictures of these people in Italy in wheelchairs on the pavement, just dead. And then there was this picture, uh, a video released out of China in Wuhan where this guy just fell flat on his face in uh, December, January or so. And they said it was from this virus. And well, we know since then we have no, not one, of the billions of people in the world infected with COVID or the millions who died, not one died like that. That was a propaganda video. That, that sure. video by China was, was terrible, but it spooked everyone. It spooked the Republicans in the, the administration of the United States. It spooked President Trump. It spooked everyone. Sure, of course. We're, we're at that time in your role at the World Health Organization, were you were you, you know, privy to any information about symptoms or, or was it, were you just getting your information from reports uh, through media? What was the information that you had access to at that time? Well, around the beginning of January and December, WHO asked me to transition my role from that project we were working on in uh, the low and middle income countries evidence-based project and to be their COVID pandemic advisor. And it was kind of bizarre because the team was just me and my director. So uh -huh. why is because at that point, WHO was caught a little flat-footed in having the right department set to respond to COVID at that point. Uh -huh. And they didn't know what was happening, like myself and everyone in the world. So we were just trying to make sense of it. So my task, my job um, was laid out to me as, we will take any information we could get from the world, Paul, and you could, help us synthesize it, like put it together, information on the symptoms, information on, on what we think this is, information on possible treatments or how to manage it in terms. I mean, we looked at everything. We looked at how we could take hospitals and, and set up makeshift hospitals at the side of it, like tents with multiple beds, like how would we react in a disaster situation? Could we use that here? How would we staff it? Blah, blah, blah. So, I had experience in um, bioterrorism and emergency preparedness, some work I did at Johns Hopkins. So I was bringing that to the table and we were getting initial symptoms at the initial information at that point from China, principally from China, as to the types of symptoms and uh, you know, the initial symptoms, the fever, you know, the cough, the malaise, the mm -hmm. body aches, et cetera. So a picture was emerging rather quickly, so much so, that by around the end of January, middle of February, we actually began to understand that COVID was amenable to risk stratification. And that meant that your, base, your baseline risk that you brought to the table was predictive or prognostic on your subsequent severity or mortality. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was that's why people like myself, Bhattacharya, uh, Kuldorf, Gupta, even Scott Atlas, that's why we were pushing this focus protection approach because we were looking at the preliminary data and we were seeing that COVID had this very steep age risk stratification line that, that there was no risk, almost zero risk from infancy all the way up to about 70, 75 years old. 
that mm -hmm. the risk is almost zero. And that, um, and that if we use a focused approach, focused protection, which was what, why we wrote, they wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, mm -hmm. which basically said that the, the key approach was you strongly protect the vulnerable in your society. You right. double down and you triple down protections on the vulnerable, but you leave the vast majority of society alone, unfettered by government or any policies. Right. No lockdowns, no school closures, no mask mandates, no closures of businesses, nothing. Right. You let the rest of society function normally. You protect the high risk constantly right. and properly. And um, we also grew to find out quickly that vitamin D was critical in this particular mm -hmm. virus in terms of cellular immunity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we fail, we fail to properly public service that. We still are failing. We found out that obesity was the principal risk factor behind the age. The data mm -hmm. was showing us that. We were seeing that the vast majority, maybe 80, 90% of people who died with end stage COVID were very overweight and morbidly obese. And, uh, but the media wouldn't touch it because it was taboo. And um, it was a political hot potato, but it right. was clear. And they refused to PSA then and why, even now. Why do you think, I mean, it, I think it was really clear early on to your point that even the general public could recognize people who were in most extreme risk were the elderly and you know either were diabetic or, or morbidly obese. Why do you think that the government did not take the approach of treating the the risk categories and took the more general approach of just locking everyone down and um, not sharing information about the importance of uh, vitamins and in particular vitamin D as it relates to COVID-19? Well, I mean, if you ask me that question, I could speak to you as a scientist, I could speak to you as a lay person. And I, and I just, I think the time has come, it's been two years and two months we've been struggling with this and we, we should be able to talk to each other, especially in society. I don't want the title, doctor this, doctor that. I just want to talk. I'm sharing based now on two years, two months of knowledge I have. I think that you need to view COVID from a political point of view. It quickly moved from being a public health response to a political response, even in the Trump administration. I have no qualms about saying, like how it's a political response today in the Biden administration. These mm -hmm. people operate in a political atmosphere arena. They are not going to deal with this as a public health disaster that it was. So every single statement, every action, they need to guide, gauge first the politics of it. And if the politics, if the, if the decision or, or activity or action would harm their electability, they won't do it. They will find a way to work around it. It is not, and this is the point. This was never about what was in the best interest of the American people or any people in any country. The Canadian government, the same, the British government. It is how do they navigate getting out of this COVID box unstable as much so they could be reelected. And that's the problem. Sure. Everything is within a political. So with all that we knew and all that we kept telling them, when we wrote, when, when, they put together the great barrington because they led that report. I was writing with Dr. Tenenbaum in Canada, Dr. Paris Dara, um, Rich, all of us who were writing, no lockdown, no school closures, the harms of it, providing all the evidence. They won't listen because you see, 
you need to look at it from this point of view. They scared the public so much into locking down, into masking up, et cetera, that they needed to continue this. So if, if they would have taken what we were saying, which was focus on the vulnerable only mm-hmm. and allow the rest of society to live normally, they would become harmlessly mm-hmm. and naturally as part of daily living, they would be exposed as they're exposed to normal viruses. The immune system deals with it and they recover and they provide the natural immunity protection to the vulnerable in society. That's how it is normally done. But in this case, because a lot of them were in election mode, particularly the Trump administration, I have no problem saying it. Mm -hmm. Then everybody's back was up against the wall. Mm -hmm. And, And from then on, everything became a very guarded response. So, so, you had governments in a, from a political posture. You had even their task force members were politicians too. Mm-hmm. A lot of these scientists are what we call technocrats and bureaucratic technocrats. Yeah. They live in a political, they all want power too. They want to be elected into something and they want, they, they want to move on to other higher things. They, in the United States, between the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, the NIAID, all of those leaders in those agencies circle amongst themselves. It's like, it's an incestuous relationship. So they need to keep their names as clean as possible. So Han would move to Moderna, would move to CDC, would move to here, there, and everywhere, and Fauci and all these people. So they, the pandemic response, Laura, was a catastrophic failure. It was a failure in the Trump administration, and it was 10 times more failure in the Biden administration. And it was a failure because politics entered into the response. And President Trump, who, this is how I'll say it, he depended heavily on the experts that were around him because he as a CEO, he doesn't have to be a scientist. And they failed him. They, They failed to follow the science. They were not operating we gave them all of this, like how we gave them the science on the vaccines. We gave them all of the data and they do not follow the science. So it makes you wonder constantly that there are things other than science at play, a lot of politics. And, and you know, it makes your mind wonder. It, 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 it was either, it was, it was one of two things, a juncture we faced. It was either sheer ineptness and incompetence by people at the highest levels in these decision-making positions, or it was some kind of malfeasance. The question is, which one? Well, no, when you watch some of the decisions. Well, sure. I think, I think it was probably a combination of both, but I think it was uh, to a certain extent, it was, I believe there was a lot of nefarious intent. I, you know, I had the opportunity to actually speak with this uh, woman, Nurse Erin, who worked at Elmhurst Hospital. She was kind of at ground zero. And some of the stories that she shared were, um, it, it, it's akin to genocide. Yes. Uh, what, was, what was happening at these hospitals, especially very early on. And what's amazing to me is this, um, that early on, to your point, a, we knew, I think, who the real risk factor, who the real risk group, I should say, was. And I think we also knew pretty for, pretty early on that there were effective treatment protocols mm-hmm. in hydroxychloroquine, as well as ivermectin and fluvoxamine, and some of the other protocols um, that were successfully used, interestingly enough, early on, and then shut down 
um, in order to go to a more terrible outcome for patients, which would be the, the ventilators and the remdesivir and, and the protocols that frankly we still see today. Um, so I think that there, my personal opinion is there was a lot of nefarious intent behind what we saw and even that continues still to this day. Yes. And I think we can see it. Um, so it's kind of a good segue here into what I, what I really want to spend some time talking to you about is what's happening with the vaccines as it relates to the pediatric population, because it blows my mind that in this country, we know, and I think the average person can probably even acknowledge at this point that children are not vectors of transmission. They are at statistically zero risk for this virus unless they have significant multiple comorbidities. Yes. Um, and there, so there's no benefit in all risk in vaccinating. And, uh, I just, let's, let's spend some time talking about that. I know that you, this in particular is a passion for you in terms of, of topics. Well, I mean, first of all, first of all, it's a very important topic and that, but actually the two, three or four lines you just laid out was actually summed everything up. There's really not much more to say, but I will speak about it in this way. You're correct. I mean, the reality about it, we knew that children, the risk of children getting COVID, well, transmitting COVID or getting severely ill or dying, statistical zero in the first place. Now, even in the, in the light of Omicron, which there are about 15 to 20 mutations on the spike that has driven immune escape to the extent where there's a clear mismatch between the vaccinal antibodies and the Omicron spike, the infectiousness of the virus. The fact of the matter is that it is giving mild illness. Now, we've been having a lot of discussions with Ruth Vandenbosch, different um, top immunologists as to, we are the end. COVID was basically over many months ago. The problem though is, because I'm going to come back to the vaccine in case, but this is an important point to raise. So when we declare that, you know, the pandemic is over, it's time to lift all the declarations and all the mandates and stuff. We were we actually saying what we believe based on the science and the evidence. However, we, we have to make sure that we caveat it constantly by letting the public know that the pandemic will, pandemic will not be over and the pandemic will go on for many decades even. This situation that we're in, if we do not stop these particular mRNA vaccines by Pfizer and Moderna. Right. Because, because what we are seeing is the antibodies produced by the vaccine is putting pressure a suboptimal type of immune pressure on uh, the spike protein, the receptor binding domain of the protein and of the spike. And that pressure coupled with tremendous infectious pressure means there's so much virus in the atmosphere and it's very infectious that um, selection pressure is the result. And I know you have a background, um, Lauren, uh, in, in science and biology and even medicine, et cetera. So, I know you understand what I'm saying. The, the pressure that we're putting on the spike is such a natural selection will select for the most fittest Darwinian natural selection variant that could overcome that suboptimal pressure. And um, they will be enriched in the environment. That means they will proliferate. They'll become mm -hmm. entrenched. Because remember, it is not, this is not happening to one person. It's happening to everyone around you. Because right. we are the ones who generate the variants. So mm -hmm. 
with, with the more, most predominant variant then that overcame the suboptimal pressure, that becomes a new dominant variant. In this case, we are up to, I think, Omicron subvariant BA4 and BA5. And what Gerton they are saying is every two months we will expect now, based on the modeling, a new variant, infectious variant to emerge. The problem with it, why we are calling for the immediate stop, is in those infectious variants could be a lethal variant. It has not happened yet. But if we are faced from a humanity point of view with an infectious and a lethal pathogenic variant, it could be devastating to humanity. And right. that's the key. That's why we are saying it is either you have a vaccine that works. In this case, the vaccine is not needed. But what we are saying is, mm -hmm. why would have you brought a vaccine that does not sterilize the virus and confer mm -hmm. proper protection and immunity? You've brought a broken vaccine to the table that can only drive variants to emerge. So it, it begs the question again as to, was this nefarious from the beginning? Because these people admitted, the FDA admitted that the vaccine does not tra stop transmission. Unless right. you could cut, yeah, unless you could cut the chain of transmission, you can never ever get to herd immunity. And if you well, cannot get to herd immunity, you could never stop the pandemic. And that's right. the key. So, and what's what's amazing to me is I it never you know I think about this all the time. Why on earth are people so willing to sign up to take a quote unquote vaccine when it it's not stopping acquisition or transmission? And why would they sign their children up for this? And I know there's some school of thought that well it will lessen the um, the symptoms should I get uh, COVID. And I think that there is a tremendous amount of evidence out there right now that that proves just the opposite, that if you if you become infected uh, with COVID after having been fully vaccinated and, and boosted and so on, that you're actually more likely to succumb to the virus and end up with much more um, dire symptoms than someone who, who is not vaccinated. Yeah, and you are right. And that's what the science and the, public, the publications are showing us. The UK data, we were getting weekly data, granular data out of the UK public health, we are getting Scottish data out of Scotland, and we have data out of Israel, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway, the United States even, that, exactly how you just said it, that um, if you are vaccinated, uh, your risk of infection post-vaccination, double and triple vaccinated, especially with the booster. And we, when we look at the data very closely, we see from about 45 to 50 years old and above, triple vaccinated, double vaccinated, you are tremendously higher risk of becoming infected with uh, the subvariant, the Omicron subvariant. And exactly what you just said too, alarmingly, a lot of these vaccinated people are ending up in the hospital and um, a lot of them are passing away, are dying. So, so there, is, there is this problem and uh, it has to do with the fact that, um, and there was this publication by Yahi et al, that Goethe and us were discussing the other day. And uh, what they're actually showing is that, is that the suboptimal, without going into the, the depth of biochemistry and immunology is this, that normally when the antibodies, the antibodies provoked by the vaccine binds to the virus, the antigen in the virus, so in this case, 
for the spike proteins, receptor binding, dopamine, et cetera, when they bind, that interaction should eliminate, prevent infection, et cetera. But what is happening is that the antibodies are non-neutralizing antibodies. They cannot prevent infection. So what is happening though is the evidence now is showing us, we actually have scientific publications that show us that the vaccinal antibodies bind to the virus, to the epitopes and the spike. Mm -hmm. They do not neutralize the, the virus, but they can bind, but not prevent. They don't eliminate the virus. And in the binding, though, in the binding, they mm -hmm. actually facilitate and enhance infection. And that is why you have vaccinated people becoming more infected because it's a combination of factors. One of them being also in this that I just described, the innate immune system, the innate antibodies, which is your first line of defense would normally eliminate and sterilize the virus and prevent infections. So you, it would not even go past where you even get symptoms, et cetera. However, the innate antibodies are very polyspecific they look at a range of variants, a, a range of virus, a virus, different mm -hmm. types of viruses, influenza, whatever. Um, but they have a low affinity to the antigen, unlike the vaccinal antibodies, which have a much higher affinity to the spike. So that the vaccinal antibodies all compete, subverts the innate antibodies for the spike. So therefore, if the vaccinal antibodies and the innate antibodies that you have are together in the system competing mm -hmm. for the spike, the vaccinal antibodies would bind. And that's the problem, why? Because then the innate antibodies, which on their own would sterilize and eliminate the virus cannot function. It loses mm -hmm. its capacity, its functional capacity. And then what is the problem with that? Well, it gets worse. Because here you have the vaccinal antibodies outcompeting the innate antibodies, which could have done the job, but the vaccinal antibodies are non-neutralizing. So you have the innate antibodies blocked right. by the vaccinal antibodies, yet the, yet the vaccinal antibodies are worthless. Yeah. And that is why the vaccinated person is at higher risk for infection. So it's a catastrophic failure. Sure. And, and it's people believe though, they, and they're being told by the medical profession that it's their duty to go out and get vaccinated. It's, it's one of the things that to sure. me has become, um, I've said this kind of a, a few times in, in other meetings with other professionals in the, in the medicine and, and science fields. And I just believe it's one of the biggest crimes that's being perpetrated on the American public. Because they're free. And this is the point, Laura you hit another very important point. And the key is people are afraid out of the gate of contagion. You mm -hmm. only mentioned contagion, people are very, very afraid because yeah. we can't see it. And when we can't see something, so we can't see exactly what the issue is or the entity, we are very afraid because now we think it will elude us and it could, it could attack us and we can't defend us, which is true. But remember, we've had a battle with pathogen, invisible pathogen to us, for millions of years, and it is a it's a dance and a symbiotic relationship between human beings and pathogen mm -hmm. for millions of years. And the, and the issue is, we have our lane, they have their lane, and the question then becomes, 
can we develop a relationship such that they want to survive? The pathogen wants to survive, just like you. Right. Um, the, in many cases, virus needs our metabolic machinery at mm -hmm. a cellular level to survive and reproduce. Right. So can they get into that relationship with us? Ordinarily, virus would infect you and use your cell capacity to reproduce and replicate itself. It will not try to harm you. And that's the key to with COVID. And we've seen it compared to the initial Wuhan legacy strain mm -hmm. right. that caused a bit more morbidity and mortality. We are down now to Omicron. And um, as time goes on, it will mutate into milder and milder versions so it does not kill the host. But the issue is we doomed the public in the beginning, the United States Task Force, Fauci and Burks and these people, they doomed the response by one of the initial statements or principles that they put out there that we have yet to be able to get out of the minds of people. They said, as that task force was, was struck and mm -hmm. they came out to the podium, they drilled this in our heads daily and the rest of the world followed, but with no evidence, and there's no evidence to support it. In fact, it's flat wrong because we see the COVID gradient, age with stratified gradient. Young infants, young children, children, teenagers, young people, they're at near zero risk. But what Fauci and Books came and they said was that we are all at equal risk of severe outcome if infected or exposed. And that is why we all need to wear a mask and lock down because with that equal risk, we are, we are spreading it asymptomatically. That was a right. flat line. And that's yeah, the, what, ace, yeah. the asymptomatic conversation was always the strangest thing to me. I mean, based on that, I would have expected to be people just collapsing everywhere. You're at the store and, and there's bodies lying all over the place based on that thought process. Um, and it, it, to me, at least, it was evident very early on that the whole concept and theory of, of asymptomatic spread um, just doesn't make sense. And I also have a background in, uh, I was an instructor for embedding, for preventing disease uh, transmission. And if you, if you think about the, the key pieces that need to be present in order for a disease to transmit, it just, none of it added up. It didn't make sense, this whole asymptomatic uh, smoke and mirrors game that they were playing. You're right, 100% correct. And, and we've looked at all of the evidence and, um, not just that you are correct theoretically, but based mm -hmm. on all of the background that you have and what you've seen across mm -hmm. generations, you need to be symptomatic to transmit pathogen number one. But there were right. a couple of early studies, Laura, that, that the media and the medical profession and Fauci et al. pretended, CDC pretended did not exist. There was a very early study published in the Lancet um, uh, um, by, by Cao et al., CAO, was the lead author. And it was one with a base population of about 10 million in China. Mm -hmm. And what they found was they were looking at um, persons who were positive for COVID, for the virus early on. And they followed all of, this, of the secondary contacts to these people and people who were asymptomatic. They were positive, but they were not showing any symptoms. Uh -huh. And they found that in, when they followed 10 million people and they followed all of the contacts, they found not one instance of asymptomatic transmission. 
That paper has remained a seminal, the seminal paper that we use when we discuss this issue, mm -hmm. because it clearly showed that asymptomatic transmission is a theoretical issue and it is not real. There was also a subsequent paper by Madewell, Madewell et al. I mm -hmm. remember this paper um, published in JAMA, and uh, they also looked at secondary transmission in positive mm -hmm. persons asymptomatic. And they found that asymptomatic was non-existent, rare, if at all, very, very minuscule. And the problem is this, that even the one or two instances where somebody came forward and said, well, look, you know, I think I got infected from those people who were asymptomatic. And we're talking about out of billions of infections like in, in America, in the world, that has happened. We could only find the number of cases you could count in your hand. But we also argue that those very few instances, those authors and scientists have been unable to verify that this was bona fide asymptomatic because we also showed them that you have problems with your interpretation of the PCR test, that you right. noted that to be asymptomatic spread because they were mm -hmm. over-cycling the PCR above oh, 24, yeah. 25. And we knew over 24, 25 is false positive. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very, you know, we, this, this entire thing with the, I think the whole pandemic, if we need to step back and say, if you could tell me one thing, I want to get back to the children and the vaccines, but if you could tell me the one part of this, the one action that really doomed or, or blundered or stymied the response, it was the use of the PCR test because the PCR sure. test was largely overcycled and a fraudulent test to be used in this situation. Most people, 95 to 97% of people with a cycle come threshold that was above 30. And we were cycling at 40 and 45. Right. In CDC, in America, and in Canada, and other countries in the world, mm -hmm. most all countries. Anything over 30 was picking up viral dust and fragments, it was not right. real COVID virus. So, right. we well, I mean, Sorry. No, I mean, we had, look, we had a, a response in this country where all of a sudden now you, in order to even move about freely in the country, if you remember like early on yeah. that it, this became, um, this, this protocol and this cycle of testing. So even within corporate America and, and, and OSHA's response to say, how should we allow uh, people, employees to go back to their workplace? If, if in fact we do allow them to, 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 you know, end the lockdown and go back to the workplace, what was the first thing they did? They said, you have to have a weekly testing regimen, right? I mean, I know I personally went through it and, and God forbid, like, let's say that you had a weekend or you had a holiday, everybody in the company then needed to get tested. The kids were getting tested in order to go back to school. And so what was happening is they were producing all of these, these false positives, yep. which added to this concept of, oh my God, well, you know, COVID's running rampant through our, through our society. And it, it um, bolstered this idea of asymptomatic spread because people would get a, I, I mean, I had friends that got a, they got a test that said positive and they would go, oh, wow, that's amazing. I, I have no symptoms. I did. I guess I got, I guess I have to stay in my room in quarantine. They do. Listen, mm -hmm. I have been writing that Fauci and Burks and the CDC and the NIH and the deep state and deep state is not like people in special military uniforms running around in the basements right. in Washington with, with special guns and whatever. The deep state is a bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. It is the intent entrenched bureaucracy of the United States government that are there for decades and they think they own the system and the government. 
-hmm. State Department employees, the career officials think they own. They told me that. I had conversations with state officials who told me, Trump is only here on a vacation. He's visiting. I've been here for 30 years, they told me. I run this thing. He's a visitor. They are visitors. We run this thing. So well, I'll tell you what, it's I think that's actually quite, quite true. And it's come to fruition because look at what happened in the last two and a half years. Uh, yeah. This is not something that happened by having a president that, that was in office for a few years. This is this was orchestrated and executed by um, a group of people operating probably at all levels of the government to perpetrate this on the American people. Yeah, and I think that <clears throat> they doomed his second president, his second um, term. Um, well, they doomed his first term. He could not be real. I don't even think Trump really understood, even today, how much lockdowns and school closures hurt him. It hurt him devastatingly. And many people didn't vote. And many people didn't vote for him because of the lockdown. In many of those Rust Belt states, they were hurt. They lost people. They lost friends who died, who died from sure. the lockdown. So sure. what I'm trying to say is, I'm trying to say that people conspired against Trump and they, they took control of the pandemic response in a way that they were running the pandemic response in a way that between the PCR tests, the lockdowns, the school closures, the business closures, everything, it was devastating for him. So much so that during his presidency, they would report every death as a death. But in mm -hmm. the Biden's presidency, the CDC moved to take nearly 100,000 mm -hmm. deaths off the total. Just like well, that. Sure. And, 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 you know, after speaking with some individuals that were at ground zero, and in particular, this, this nurse, Erin, it's so evident to me that it was almost genocidal. And the people that did die, especially early on, um, there was no need for them to die. They, they, were, they were brought in. They were, first of all, we, we essentially did something that we've never done before in society, which is tell people that are not feeling well to um, you know, hunker down at home, to wait until they're in a total emergent state where they then have to be taken to the hospital. And once they get to the hospital, there are no uh, protocols that are set in place to actually um, support that the, the patient, rather put them in an even worsened state by immediately putting them on, um, on a, a ventilator. And, and I know just from my, from my basic medical background, that putting patients on a ventilator would be a last resort, right? So you put them on a ventilator and then you start pumping them full of a medication that we knew, I believe we knew very early on had um, a, a terrible outcome. I, I've now heard some data and I, and I would love for you to correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard data that people that are put on remdesivir and a ventilator, it's like an 80% um, fatality rate. Uh, so, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, you have these, these situations where patients are brought to hospitals, they're essentially killed, right? And then those are counted as, as COVID deaths. And I mean, I could tell you stories. I, I have someone who, who knows someone that worked at a coroner's office and um, she quit the coroner's office because she said she was tired of deaths being correlated to COVID that had nothing to do with COVID. And she cited one example as 
a guy was driving down the street, was T-boned by another car. The car, the guy that got T-boned was killed, right? But the guy that, that T-boned the car, he had COVID, right? So they classified the guy that died as a COVID death. And I hear these stories over and over and over again. So going back to what we originally were talking about, which is the, the counting of the deaths, it's so clear to me that it was done in a very by design way to continue to generate the propaganda um, and, and fear around this rather than coming in and being logical and really trying to understand the virus, understand the best path pathways for treatment, understand the, the uh, risk categories, the risk demographic, and put together an overall protocol so that people could go about their daily life uh, with the confidence of knowing that there's a treatment protocol and knowing that if they're in a risk category, they, you know, they were protected, but we didn't yeah. do any of that. No, we feel, and, and, you know, again, you know, you are touching on all of the very important points and you're covering them well. And the thing about it is that, is that um, between the flawed PCR test, we put people on ventilators and, and the, the evidence emerged quickly that the ventilators were killing people. The ventilators weren't calibrated properly and the lungs were so traumatized by the time when you put them in hospital and you put them on a ventilator, you'd blow holes in the lungs and kill people. And the remdesivir, we have, remdesivir is a failed drug. It's a failed Ebola drug. They couldn't get it approved. Remdesivir is what Tamiflu is to influenza. Remdesivir is to COVID. Tamiflu was a drug seeking a disease. And when H1N1 swine flu came around, they made Tamiflu the drug and it is failed. It, it is given, Tamiflu is given as the influenza standard of care and it has failed, it doesn't work. Remdesivir was a drug looking for disease. They had it on the shelf because it could not be approved and they made it now the standard of care. When the NIH announced that Remdesivir was, um, uh, they, they got a signal, it was on a particular day around 3 or 4 p.m. in the evening, and there was this big fanfare in the White House, in the Oval Office with Fauci and they, and how uh, uh, it's effective. Mm -hmm. What the public didn't know is that the mortality outcomes and the hard outcomes were, had failed. They couldn't get any indication that the drug worked. What Fauci and they did at the NIH is they removed the hard patient important outcomes. I know this because I study methodology. We've written mm -hmm. about this. This has right. to be investigated. What they did was scientific fraud. They made those primary outcomes secondary outcomes. And they chose, they found one outcome. I believe it was a time to symptom resolution where, where they, they, they found that people who it would take 14 days of, let's say, cough, and yeah. reduced the cough to 12 days. Not eliminated, just reduced it. They say, well, okay, well, then you could probably get out of the hospital fast or something. It was bogus. They chose the outcome that was a soft, wishy-washy, unimportant outcome. Right. And they made that the primary outcome because they said, oh, we saw a difference between the remdesivir group and the control group. But it was just garbage science. No one was interested in that, but they declared, oh, well, this drug is effective because of that. Well, it's much like uh, the vaccines, right? And what we're seeing coming out of the Pfizer yes. documents right now, that there, there was absolutely no clinical um, studies that were truly done and understanding. I mean, there were, there were whole groups, um, demographic groups that were left out 
right? And, and we know that they, we, we know now that based on Pfizer's own clinical studies, that children under the age of 18 are at 107 times greater risk of dying from the vaccine than they are from dying of COVID-19 from the virus itself. Yes. And the thing is, the thing about it is that, again, this is the points you're raising are very important that we need to consider as a society. So let's just get back straight to the kids and the vaccine because that's the key issue right now in the news. So Pfizer and Moderna, and the, the FDA has said it, it, it plans about four or five final meetings, I believe, in June to authorize a lot of these vaccines in children. Um, what I've noticed is they're bypassing their own internal uh, vaccine safety boards. They, they, um, the, the, the internal board, the, I think VBRAC is the name of the board, where the outside advisors who are supposed to be impartial they're supposed mm -hmm. to take the meetings to them to relay the evidence and get their input. They're not, they're not going right. to do this to that board. They just right. authorize FDA um, 5 to 11 year old, uh, the Pfizer vaccine. And um, it's just a catastrophic mess because the truth of the matter is children are not at severe risk of this illness. And, and, and when we talk about kids, we talk about kids in general, and we're particularly talking about healthy kids, which are the vast majority of children. I mean, mm -hmm. if you have a high-risk child, if you have a 10-year-old child, let's say, who is morbidly obese and has underlying medical conditions, this is a high-risk child for death under normal circumstances. Right. And you, the parent, can think that you are informed enough that you understand the risks and benefits if you do, and if that is given to you, and you make a genetic vaccine, these vaccines should be offered and never mandated. Well, we live in a free country. You can do that. Right. Well, let me ask you, that's a, good, that's a good point. Let me ask you a quick question then. Um, so let's say under that circumstance, you do have a child that falls into a risk category, which I think we're acknowledging would be exceptionally rare, but let's say that you do. In that circumstance, given everything that we know about this quote unquote vaccine. And I always say that kind of quote unquote, because I think that it's, I don't really term these as vaccines, mm -hmm. but would that even be a benefit for a child in the, under that circumstance? Or would it be better to follow some other protocol of um, diet and health and vitamin supplement and um, maybe even some early treatment prophylactic like um, intervention of, of ivermectin and hydrochlor hydro hydroxychloroquine, excuse me. Yes, you're right, but but remember, remember um, what the, the piece of that discussion is: our parents and parents mm -hmm. being very concerned, and they having the right to make the decision for their dependent child. Sure. So the question is, in my view, based on all I know about these vaccines, they confer zero benefit, none. They don't work. Zero. Mm -hmm. They don't. They don't reduce death. They don't reduce hospitalization, ICU. They don't deal with moderate or severeness, none of that. They are just designed to reduce symptoms. Okay, now the question is, if you are a parent and you have a sick child, most often you will try anything. You, you will try, sure. you will give them anything. So even if you are hearing that this vaccine will work or this vaccine is even harmful, but your child is mortally ill, meaning your child is, is, a, is severely ill, that there is a severe risk of death 
absent of COVID, right. without COVID being in the picture. You may decide to take the vaccine, but that should only be after you're properly explained the benefits and the harms. They are never explained the benefits and the harms. Right. And well, and I don't think I don't think they can explain them because really none of can. us are offer, well, we're not operating under informed consent. Like no nobody knows what's contained in like the full list of what's contained in these vaccines. So that almost in and of itself, no one to this to the date, to date, excuse me, has been able to uh, engage in any type of informed consent. Yes, and that's true too. And that has been one of the failures here. No one has actually in this entire world for this entire situation gotten informed consent. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is a parent may say, well, I want to make the decision to take the vaccine. And we live in a free society. So mm -hmm. then the challenge is why would, how would you prevent someone from making their free choice? If it is offered and not mandated, the question here is we've been mandating these failed vaccines mm -hmm. across the board for all risk groups when most people have almost zero risk. So right. <clears throat> that's a challenge and that, that's why Pfizer and they cannot run studies to show that these vaccines could even work. It's impossible. Why? Because if the baseline risk in the control group in the population is near zero, zero, you cannot find less than zero. So you need to have the intervention group showing an effect that differs from the baseline group, control group. Right. If the control group is zero, how would you find less than zero? You can't. Right. Right. You usually have a sample of 100 million children, which you don't have. So, so um, if we start from there and understand the baseline is already zero, that's a decision already. We don't need these vaccines. So it's a, it's a bunch of insane stuff. And, they, and they're running these, these crazy observational type studies, not randomized studies, based on 50, 60 children. So right away, the sample size is undersized deliberately so that you can't detect any safety signals, particularly rare safety signals. Because let's say myocarditis occurs one in 3,000 in the population. But you run a study with 60 kids. That's what they did to authorize this five to 11 year old yesterday. That was a sample size. I believe let's just say, let's say that just one more time, because that I think is something that the American public needs to hear. They did it with, what was their sample size? 67. 67, 67, that's yeah. it. What is the population under the age of 18? And um, I, I'm gonna, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think the population under the age of 18 is like over 70 million in this country. Yeah. So, so, so this is the point. What, what they're doing, Laura, is scientific fraud and malfeasance because they are deliberately undersizing the studies mm -hmm. so that you cannot detect the effect, particularly safety issues. Because again, let's use myocarditis as an issue. If myocarditis is occurring at one to three, we have, we have all estimates, one, to, one in 6,000, one in five, some say one in two, some say one in three. Let's go with one in three. So mm -hmm. one in 3,000, if you run a study with 67 kids, you could never ever detect it. You need 3,000 children at least in one of the arms to be able to detect that one rare event in one child. Right. And so I don't think you have to be a statistician to know that, right? <laughs> right, so it's being, it's being done to defraud and to mislead. So mm -hmm. everything about this is wrong. Um, they're using a concept called immunobridging, which, mm -hmm. We in the research community, 
struggle to understand what the hell they're trying to do. And what they're saying they're doing is, well, we are only going to look at antibody levels and we will compare the antibody levels after the vaccine in the group we're looking at, so the 5P levels, and we will compare it to the 16 to 24 year olds. So if the vaccine antibody levels spike at a higher level, we will say it works even better, it works. Well, the problem with that is that antibodies are not a proxy or good measure of immunity, cellular immunity. It is cellular memory immunity that we're interested in because antibody levels wane. And with these vaccines, they wane in a matter of weeks now. So they don't work, it's a failure. So even to tell us, well, if anything you inject into your arm or anything will spike your antibodies because it's a foreign substance into your system, your immune response, you will generate antibodies to whatever it is. So we right. would expect your antibodies to spike, but the antibodies immediately go up and come back down. So they offer no protection for any appreciable time. That's why they come around now and say, well, you need to be boosted probably every month now. So it's just an insane, bizarre, crazy, malfeasant situation because there's no basis for any of it. Look, if the children have near zero risk and the vaccine doesn't confer any protection, why then are we giving these vaccines? Particularly since we've seen that the same vaccines cause harm. Sure, so I mean, yeah. Well, we're seeing, and I, I'm sorry for cutting you off, but, no, no. but to that point, in terms of harm, I think there's so much evidence that's now coming out. And you may not, you know, people may not even know of specific instances or know someone in their life that's vaccine injured. Although I'm starting to see that that's actually rare. I think most people even know people that are vaccine injured. Um, but what we're seeing is policies being put in place that are indicative of the fact that we are starting to see a rise and a dramatic rise in the pediatric population's uh, vaccine injury. And I'll, get, I'll cite one example, that in California, schools are now, school administrators, and we're talking school teachers, principals, assistant principals, school nurses are all being trained to recognize cardiac emergencies. Now, can you imagine that? Think about that for a second. So they're being trained to recognize cardiac emergencies in kindergartners and second graders and fourth graders and so on. That to me is a clear indicator and a red flag, right? It's a clear indicator that they're putting policies in place because this is no longer a rare instance. It's becoming um, much more uh, of the norm than a rarity. Yes, and that, that is so true. And that's the issue. The issue is that... Um... Um, myocarditis and the heart issues from the vaccine is not rare and is not mild. Mm -hmm. And uh, the impacts are going to be long-term and devastating. They cause cardiac death and good, healthy people in a matter of a few years. See, particularly with myocarditis, because when you're a young person, a teenager, because you're healthy all the way around and your anatomy and physiology is working so well, it, it can compensate for the, for, the, for the cardiac loss and all of that due to the dead heart cells. Because mm -hmm. with myocarditis, there's scar tissue in the heart, myocardial cells don't regenerate. So you have this loss, but the rest of the system could compensate because you're young and very strong. But as you get older and everything is declining with time, that cardiac loss emerges prominently when you're like mm -hmm. 35, 40. 
And when you're now in the prime of your life hitting the stride, people suffer cardiac death. Their heart just stops because the myocarditis that was, you said mild, it had a catastrophic long-term effect. There's some data, some science that actually shows that if you have moderate myocarditis, your risk of death, five-year risk of death is 50%. Half of that's, people will die. That's staggering. And, yes. and staggering. And to think about, you know, sometimes I hear people saying, well, it's, it's mild, it's mild. And I always shake my head and say, it doesn't seem to me that anything to do with the cardiac system in particular in children would be mild, right? Because to your point, there is long-term impact. Yes. And um, as, a, as a parent, I find it to be astonishing that anyone would passively just label this as, well, it's mild, right? Especially because you're putting your children at risk by taking these vaccines when they're, and it's just not, it's just so unnecessary. Right, they have no risk from the virus, so I even go ahead. It is unnecessary, and um, and uh, the truth of the matter is that that when you had the FDA, com the not the FDA commissioner, the um, the person who is in charge of the vaccine development, Dr. Peter Marks, mm -hmm. he is in charge of uh, of the research arm to the actual almost end stage, I would say, vaccine process, the development. He came out of the FDA recently, and I know Peter Marks personally because I worked there and we've had conversations on the phone and emails, et cetera, whilst I was there. And I can tell you that I, I just don't understand what's happening now because I've, I've looked at this person, he's a very, very smart guy, he's a clinician originally, and um, um, benevolent individual and really, Really, all my interactions with him were tremendous. But now I'm seeing decisions and things coming out that I don't understand what has happened because he recently wrote about four or five days ago, I don't know if you can recall this, that they're going to drop the threshold of efficacy from 50%. In other words, what he's saying is that the lower end of the confidence interval was like 30%. Mm -hmm. And the actual threshold was 50 that vaccines needed to reach. What he's saying is, if we, if we don't get there with these vaccines, that we would we'd still consider approving them in children. And it was the most staggering thing because it made us realize that they're not getting proper results. The vaccine is failing, but they're going to readjust the threshold that they, the FDA, that's the threshold that the FDA set there must be a right for vaccine to be approved, to be deemed efficacious, et cetera. Right. So now they're mocking around with their own internal threshold and it well, really boggles the mind. Right, you think about that. I mean, you just put all this together. It seems like such a desperate attempt to get these vaccines forced into the arms of the pediatric population. We're talking about mandating vaccines in order for children to attend school. Now we're talking about dropping the thresholds necessary um, down to 50%. Below it's, 50. It feels below 50%. Below. It, I mean, it feels like such a desperate attempt. You know, early on, we when back these vaccines came out, I would talk to friends. And one of the common things that we would talk about is that if this virus 
was genuinely attacking the pediatric population and we were seeing high death rates and we were seeing that it was communicable to the extent that the media was portraying parents would be lining up yeah. to get their children vaccinated but it's the exact opposite parents are, are living in fear right now um, figuring out whether or not they should pull their kids out of school and start homeschooling because you know we're all afraid that the government is forcing an experimental drug on our children and we there's so many questions nobody can understand why so, well well i mean well i mean look first of all if people did wrong things in the beginning they can't admit today um they can't reverse course because they will be liable in some way if not if not entirely legally in a courtroom setting because they got liability protection in the prep act etc if not that way, the, the, who knows? The public might take, take up pitchforks and head to DC. Who knows? No, people are very angry. Listen, I have told people it will take one or two deaths of little children, sadly, right. for mothers in America to, to stand up. And if mothers well, in America we've seen stand that. up, it will be a trouble. It will be a problem. Right. We've seen that. We've seen deaths in children. It's horrific. And uh, I've got my pitchfork ready. So just point me in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's okay. talk about the World Health Organization and what's going on with them and this attempt to usurp all um, the medical decisions as it relates to pandemics um, for the from the United States or individual state members. Well, I think um, the World Health Organization has set up this. Um, this, this procedure, this approach, this new um, policy where I believe that be, being a part of the United Nations, they wanna be the governing body to make a decision as to how your society is going to respond. Like if they declare a pandemic or an epidemic, let's say a pandemic, and you are not responding appropriately, they could take actions, like not necessarily against your country, but even I think from my own read from within your own country, so, so that is a big problem because, because first of all, the World Health Organization has emerged as probably one of the most corrupted, inept public health agencies like the CDC, the NIH, the FDA. These places need to be taken down to the studs and fumigated and everybody fired and started, start over. <laughs> whatever, whatever they were doing in the beginning that was good, it's corrupted and politicized and biased now. So right. And you would know because yes. you worked directly with the World Health Organization. I worked there and I, and I know a lot of people there and I know, I know the mindset and I know the caliber of the people. Um, now, the thing is though that I believe in a country like the United States is going to be very problematic because I think we are heavily governed. Well, I mean, you know, we have all the different levels of government, mm -hmm. et cetera, right. but we have our constitutions, et cetera, and all of our different um, framework documents that I do not think that the World Health Organization could supersede Congress, et cetera. And um, for anything, our Congress, in my view, is going to have to vote at the House level and the Senate is going to have to ratify it and a president is going to have to pass it into law. For, in other words, we're going to have to pass a law to align with WHO, what right. this crazy stuff that they're doing. Um, it's not that if they pass something at WHO that we're going to have to right. go along with. But that's the question. Do we have, right now, 
before the election in November, we have Democrats control the House. Um, do we have Republicans who would side with the Democrats and pass this law, pass a law to align with what the WHO is trying to do? And that is our challenge. It's not even WHO to pass whatever it wants to pass in its own agency rules and regulations. Who cares about what WHO is saying? WHO doesn't run the United States of America. Our government, our systems of laws at the right. House, the Senate, the, the executive branch does that. And we have our courts, Supreme Court, et cetera, that even oversees a lot of those things too. So, Well, I think yeah. that you hit the nail on the head. That's, that's the danger, right? The danger is in this country, if we are, if we have an administration that is tending to align more closely with the wishes and the will of the World Health Organization, how does that impact the United States of America? And I think we saw over the last two and a half years just how um, mishandled this, this kind of quote unquote pandemic, um, and I say that cautiously, which is a whole nother topic of conversation, yeah. but, but you know how they responded and handled the pandemic and the catastrophic effects that it had globally. And so I guess my question is knowing what you know about um, the political environment, knowing what you know about the, the uh, federal agencies, the NIH, the, uh, the FDA, the CDC, and of course the World Health Organization, what are your thoughts in terms of this attempt to insert themselves in a role that they would have total authority and unchecked authority too. I actually took the opportunity to read through some of the amendments that, that the World Health Organization is suggesting. And it just seems that it would be unchecked authority, right? That they, they wouldn't even have to consult with any of the member states if they were to declare a pandemic. Well, first of all, I think the World Health Organization and their leadership and whomever they're insane people, they're nuts. Even think this would fly in certain countries, it won't. I think they're still at a point of talking, talking, talking. They have not had votes and high the discussions with those member countries yet. Many countries wouldn't go along with that. Their people wouldn't go along with that. But more importantly, I think where we are right now in a place like America is the population of America needs to understand what this is about. And that's where we are very important. I myself have been speaking, other people too, speaking out and trying to inform and educate the public as to this coming situation so that we could let our House members and senators know that if you voted for this, we're going to vote you out. Because at the end of the day, right. everything is solved in the court of public opinion. And once we inform the public that this is a catastrophic setup, um, that, that while you are sleeping and not paying attention, the House and the Senate might conspire together and give Biden something to pass into law. Because mm -hmm. nothing could happen in America unless it's a law. Right. So, so the WHO could do what they want, but if the government could get the law passed with the exact same wording, even as the WHO's garbage, they would do it. So we need to stop them. And these coming yeah. elections is how we stop them. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I always say that there's a piece of me that is in a little bit of disbelief that we're even in this situation and having these conversations because if early on the people that the people that believed, you know, and 
what we, you and I believe and know to be true um, would just have not complied. I, the government wouldn't have been able to put the country in the situation that it's in. Um, so with that, I would love to know how people can follow your work. Why don't you tell, tell everyone how they can follow your work, what your website is, um, what next steps are for you? Well, well, first of all, as you all know, um, I'm with the Unity. And point though is that the Unity project has been a lot of great work and um, uh, could use any kind of help and support that you can. So I think I would say, first of all, that the deference has to go to the Unity. Um, Laura's group, um, this, this, this particular entity. So if you can go to the Unity project and find your way to provide them the support that they need to keep us going because they're supporting a bunch of uh, us doctors, you know, <laughs> myself, McCullough, Kiriati, et cetera. Now, aside from that is I, I have my own website called drpaulalexander.com. That's no capitals and no spaces. That's D-R-P-A-U-L-A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R.com. And I also write a daily substack um, where I just, from what is going on in news and whatever new scientific studies come out, I, 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 I put it up and I, and I comment a little bit about what I think about the findings and stuff. And that's a, that substack is Alexander COVID news. And the truth of the matter is everything is available for free. So, so um, it's free, but there's the option. I, I think Substack's like five bucks a month or something. If you want to support it, you can, but I, I didn't put a paywall or firewall to prevent people because I think the information has to be out there. There are some people who read and write me and say, oh, Paul, I can't believe what you're writing. You know, I, I just want to, I, I subscribe and they say, okay, I'm doing it for five, five bucks a month. I say, okay, great, fine. So if you can do it, but if you can't, that's fine too, it's free. The information is there because we have to find a way to inform each other mm -hmm. and awaken each other. That's the key because the elections are coming in November right. and um, then the other elections in two years after that. But, but we face serious, serious issues right now, particularly sure. with these vaccines for children. And, and <clears throat> we are going at every possible rally or every opportunity to speak. I myself, I'm writing. We are talking and pushing because these vaccines are tremendously unnecessary and very harmful in children. And I, and I will end always by saying under no condition must a parent allow their healthy child to take any of these vaccines. And that's like 99.9% of the population. If you as a parent think that you are informed enough and working with your clinician, um, you, your child is a high-risk child and you want to try anything and you think that you want to, but then, but the vaccine should not be mandated because Never. that makes it across the board for everyone. And that is not, that's not right because the vast majority, if not all children don't carry that risk. And my view is this vaccine should have never been brought in total. Never. And I agree with you. Yes. And today I see that they must be stopped. Because mm -hmm. all of the science that we see and have seen for the last year shows that they're ineffective and harmful. Right. And, and we just don't know enough about them. There's not been, I mean, look at the Pfizer documents that have come out. It's, it's evident that they did not do enough studies um, around the, 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 not only the efficacy, but the safety of, of these vaccines. But but, that is key. 
That uh, is you know, to, to Paul's point, it's these doctors and scientists that are in this fight have had their lives dismantled, system, systemic, systematically, excuse me, dismantled um, by people that would not like the, the story told. They would not like the truth to come out. And so any support that, that, that you can give to Dr. Alexander, as well as the Unity Project, it's greatly needed and greatly appreciated. Uh, obviously, we want to keep this content coming. Well, the key is if they can support only you, then we prefer that too, because you all are helping us and you are helping other agencies. Mm -hmm. So we have to be, you know, we have to be honest here. There are a few entities and agencies organizations that I have realized that actually are doing good work um, and supporting other scientists to keep them on the go and the unity is one. Many others who have come into operation don't do this. I'm sorry, I say things. I'm a very blunt <laughs> matter of fact person. They enrich themselves. You know, they, 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 they use the donated money not for the fight. This is a fight. And, it um, is a fight. It's a fight yeah. for our life. It's a fight for our country. It's a fight for our freedoms. Um, and and I, that sounds so cliche, but I can't put it any more clearer or simpler than that. So I want to thank you so much, Dr. Alexander. You're amazing. Um, I am a true fan and it's mm -hmm. been such an honor to get to know you in, in this fight and get, get to you know have the privilege to work with you and to see the work that you've done and the information that you're bringing to everyone. So keep up the good work, and um, I, I'm just thrilled to be working with you. Same here, Laura, and thank you and Jeff and everyone for um, the opportunity I have and the good uh, scientists that I work with and the work that Unity is doing. So hope, not hopefully, I know we'll be, I, I've told Jeff in my recent meeting with him that I will be, um, I'm committed to helping him and helping the Unity long term. Okay. So we will always find a way. Thank you. From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.